This morning, I want you to take your Bible and I want you to open the book of Romans. Romans. Romans chapter 13. And I'm just going to read the first um, seven verses of Romans chapter 13. You're having a hard time finding it because your book, now your Bible just naturally falls open to the book of John, I know. There are other books in the New Testament, yeah, yeah. The book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which uh, uh, exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed uh, those and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil do you want to have no fear of authority do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it is a minister of God to you for good but if you do what is evil be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all to what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Well, this morning, as you see already, we're setting aside our study in the book of uh, John, since we've come to the end of chapter 5 and are start to entering, starting to enter into chapter 6. I want us to spend a little bit of time here in Romans 13. Now, do you know what tomorrow is? Besides the day after you just lost an hour of sleep? Tomorrow is actually the one-year anniversary, if we can call it that, the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 lockdown. March 15, at least for this fellowship, uh, is when our world came to a screeching halt and everything changed. Now, obviously, at the beginning, none of us knew exactly what was going on or just how severe the virus was. And so we, out of an overabundance of precaution and to give a public testimony that we were in this fellowship taking the outbreak seriously, and in order to honor the governor's directive to stay at home, to comply with the spirit of his request, not to gather more than 10 people uh, together at one time in order to stop the spread of the virus, we suspended our uh, in-person gatherings for a period of time, and we did everything live stream. So March 15th last year was the first live stream that we carried on here that I think we've ever done. We've broadcast into the back room, but we, we went to, into the virtual world, I guess. At some point, about eight weeks or so after the initial shutdown, we made the decision to reopen and exercise our right of free assembly to worship. As the governor began to lift restrictions on businesses with no discussion whatsoever about reopening churches, his office was determining what he considered to be quote-unquote essential and then non-essential activities or businesses. At this time, again, making the decision to close was something we didn't want to do, but in the light of the information that we were, be get, were given to us, I don't know if you remember those times, right? The governor has an edict, the president has an edict, right? Uh, and we just felt like we were almost compelled. Um, I fought it vehemently for a while, but we were compelled that we just had to go with it for a while and see what was happening. And, and as I mentioned to you along the way, we were sending out emails pretty regularly, we, we were really in uncharted waters. We were in a situation here in the church uh, in North America that the church hadn't been in for 100 years, literally, since the uh, Spanish flu outbreak in 1918. So we were uh, trying to figure all this out, trying to attempt uh, how to uh, best shepherd our people, how to best honor those in authority over us, over us uh, best uh, how to obviously and most importantly to, 
to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So those were trying times. Now we look at it back in the olden days, so to speak, right a year ago, the past. But for many, a year down the road, things haven't changed. The trying times haven't departed. California, if you're obviously more than likely aware of that situation, or if you're from there, you know, they're still under a lockdown order. Uh, there, there's been an ongoing public legal battle between Dr. MacArthur and the elders of Grace Community Church for the state of California as to whether or not Grace Community Church can gather in defiance of the governor's uh, orders to remain closed. You remember it was somewhere towards the end of uh, July that Grace Community reopened in defiance of the govern governor's order, which uh, ensued of various uh, lawsuits from the state of California, County of Los Angeles, etc., and so forth. And at the same time, there was a considerable amount of criticism from the so-called Christian world that MacArthur and the Grace Church was out of line for violating the governor's edict, and they were risking people's lives by opening the church, uh, risking people's lives to die perhaps from the COVID. And then as I brought to your attention over the last few weeks, we even prayed for it this morning, the situation up in Canada with our brother James Coates at Grace Life Church in Spruce Grove, Alberta, uh, who in obedience to the scripture simply opened his church to whoever wanted to come in. Let me say that again, because that's what's going on there, right? He, in obedience to the scripture, simply opened the church to whoever wanted to come to worship in violation of the health order by the state uh, to close the church or severely limit the capacity. I'm going to read to you from an article by a man named Eric Davis, who's the pastor of Cornerstone Church uh, out in Wyoming. He says this, Grace Life suspended, and he gives a little bit of a background, uh, Grace Life suspended corporate worship services in the spring of 2020 in response again to the largely unknown COVID situation. On June 21, the church resumed meeting for corporate gatherings. <clears throat> in early July, two people who attended Grace Life tested positive for COVID and upon which the church shut down for two weeks. Then they resumed meeting again when it was discovered that no further spread had occurred. In November, Canadian health officers, officials began showing up at Grace Life worship gatherings, recording the number of attendees who were not wearing masks or social distancing. That continued for about three months. In December, the chief medical officer of Alberta issued a mandate to restrict worship gatherings to 15% capacity with masks and social distancing. On December 17th, the health inspector posted a report against the church. On January 21st, a court order was filed to imprison Pastor Coates. The health department issued a closure order on January 29th, and Grace Life continued to gather together for corporate worship. On February 7th, Canadian police officer uh, told, uh, or police officers told uh, Pastor Coates, who is a graduate from the Master's Seminary, who's been at that church since 2010, faithfully shepherding that fellowship, uh, that he was under arrest for continuing to preside over the worship gatherings, explaining to him that he must abide by health orders. He explained to them he could not go against his conscience and he needed to shepherd God's people. The police left without arresting him. Health inspectors attended Grace Life again on February 14th, and then Pastor Coates was arrested and jailed two days later. Davis says, in, in the meantime, as Canada jails Pastor Coates, the nation considers marijuana dispensaries and liquor stores essential services. Reportedly, he says, authorities will release him from jail on the condition that he does not preside over Grace Life services. So far, Pastor Coates seems to have, no, have declined the offer. Perhaps this reminds us, he says, of John Bunyan, who once wrote, I shall stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Now, by the way, I don't know if you know this, and some young ladies in our fellowship uh, passed this information on to me, and I looked it up. James, uh, Pastor Coates, I did not know it again until they told me, Pastor Coates has taken quite a bit of criticism 
for his stand by many professing Christians, saying that what he is enduring is really not persecution, that he is, in fact, disingenuous, that he's nothing more than someone who's just trying to draw attention to himself, that he has created a situation that he doesn't really need to be in because, open quote, technically, end quote, right? He didn't need to technically gather the body of Christ together. And they would also say that Grace Life Church is physically trying to harm people by exposing them to COVID as they are demanding to stay open. Now, Eric Davis is part of a group of guys, and perhaps some of you have read this blog. It's called Cripplegate, the Cripplegate. It's an online blog. I'd encourage you to look at, look at it. It's helpful most of the time. Uh, and uh, the men there at the Cripplegate uh, regarding this issue of taking shots from your own side uh, and the lack of Christian uh, charity by other so-called Christians towards Coates and the elders at Grace Life uh, Fellowship write this. Say many professing Christians, like eager referees over the past few days, are throwing penalty flags, self-righteously declaring things like, nope, sorry, this doesn't actually count as persecution. He didn't technically, again, quote-unquote, technically need to gather as the body of Christ. They say we might imagine how those who are more eager to invalidate Pastor Coates' persecution than they are uh, to compassionately weep for the brother, his wife, children, fellow elders, church, and the wickedness of that nation might have responded to the persecutions of the past. Sorry, they write. Sorry, no, John. Uh, John the Baptist, your decapitation doesn't really count as actual persecution because you're a bit sassy to the governmental officials. Uh, you lacked grace, compassion, and mercy towards Herod. You were unloving about his perverted sexual sin since you didn't technically a need to confront Herod and that, uh, that directly. So it's not persecution. You should have built a relationship with him for years and just silently prayed, never mind that Jesus calls you the greatest guy who ever lived. Right? I mean, you get the point. Now, obviously, the writers admit that, you know, this situation with Pastor Coates isn't exactly the identical to John, but they ask this question. They say, why would professing Christians be so quick to try to invalidate it, the, the suffering that Pastor Coates... Why would professing Christians be so quick to try to invalidate it. Why are they to sit, or who are they to sit in the judiciary bench with the persecution scales weighing up someone's suffering to declare it genuine or not, right? And that's a tremendous question. It's a good question. The guy's sitting in maximum security, right? The guy is away from his uh, family. And I think I told you last week, it was also that same government that uh, set free a uh, sexual predator that they knew I was going to repeat because they gave a warning as they let him go that he's going to do it again, but we have to let him go, right? So who are these guys to sit in the judiciary bench of persecution trying to waste someone's suffering? These men ask this question, which is good. Uh, whatever happened to love? Uh, whatever happened to love one another? Out of John 13, whatever happened to weep with those who weep? Out of John 12, whatever happened to humility and compassion and love for the brethren? They say, instead of uncharitable penalty flag approach to Pastor Coates' situation, perhaps we should consider the word of God. Romans 14.4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls and will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Or uh, John 14.7 and 10, for if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then they say this, Christians need to rethink the penalty flag tactic to another persecution. It's like self it's likely self-righteously it's likely self-righteous grandstanding 
perhaps moved by their own condemned conscience or secretly due to their lukewarmness and hidden compromises. We need to grow in God-centeredness, actual biblical compassion, boldness, and true biblical unity. Instead of being quick to throw the persecution penalty flag, we should pause, practice our faith and love, and believe the best, rejoicing in the boldness and love of this brother, praising God that this pastor loves Jesus and his flock so much that he wants to be obedient to Jesus and shepherd them, care for them, feed them, and protect them in the sacred essential time of corporate gathering. That's a powerful statement. And again, I'm going to say this, and I want you to listen carefully. Pastor James Coates is in jail because he faithfully obeyed his conscience and Christ's command to shepherd his church, refusing to comply with the restrictions that included limiting Sunday morning uh, attendance, refusing to comply with governmental restrictions that included limiting Sunday morning attendance to 15% capacity. He refused to turn people away from his church, from his fellowship, who wanted to come and worship, right? He wanted to shepherd all of God's people, let all of God's people come in, not just a select few. That's why he's in jail. He is not in jail because he violated Canadian health laws. He's in jail because he refused to turn away people who wanted to come to worship. And if he would just agree to turn away people in the future who want to come and worship, then the Canadian government says they'll let him out of jail, which, of course, is something that he cannot do and something that he will not do because he's a good and a faithful shepherd. James Coates' lawyer says this, in essence, the Canadian government has forced Pastor Coates into a position where he had to choose between disobeying God and obeying government or obeying God and disobeying government. Now, I say that by partial way of introduction, because there's not all of it, but just partial, right? The COVID world's changed everything. How fast have things changed in the last year? And more than likely, I would, not that I'm a betting man, but I'm betting that the good old days aren't coming back, right? I'm thinking more than likely the world that we once knew is probably not coming back anytime soon. And more than likely, we're going to probably start facing or encountering ever-increasing situations where we as a fellowship, we as individual Christians, are going to have to make some very wise and some very biblical decisions, maybe some difficult decisions. In part, how much are we going to allow governmental intrusion into the church? How much of that will we accept? Uh, And when will it be time for disobey government in light of our duty to obey God? So the situation that we've now found ourselves again in the COVID world requires us to stop and think carefully on these issues, the times that we live in. What's our role? What's our responsibilities? Also, what's the government's role, both in society and in the church? And ask ourselves exactly where is that line between disobeying God and obeying government or obeying God and disobeying government? As we're seeing an ever-increasing secular world trying to press itself uh, in through our front doors and trying to conform us, not trying, they're trying to force us almost by gunpoint to conform to their image the conformers to their ideology, to their thinking. So how will we respond to that issue and all the issues that are coming? How are we to think biblically about the role of government and the response that the Christian has to government? Whether, again, it be issues surrounding the COVID or other laws that are being promoted then passed or attempted to be passed into law that infringe on the activities or the beliefs of the church. You're all aware of the Equality Act, right, that has uh, passed the, the House and now been sent up to the to the Senate, right? Uh, I'll just give you a little, uh, my, my first um, major in college was political science, so let me give you a little bit of political science background. 
Um, whatever a bill says, you can pretty much guarantee it's absolutely the opposite of what it says, right? If it's called the Equality Act, then it's the Inequality Act in practicality, okay? Just in case you didn't know that, all right? And, and so the Equality Act has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with restricting religious freedom and imposing upon us by law certain standards that we are not going to accept. So again, the question is, what does the Bible teach? What's the biblical view on this? What is the theology? What is a biblical theology of government? So in light of our present circumstances, our times that we live in, the anniversary celebration, uh, and so on, I thought it might be helpful for us just to stop for a moment and think about these uh, issues. Things probably aren't going to get any better. Uh, this uh, discussion is probably long overdue, and uh, I don't think the heat's going to be turned down any by the culture and the government. I think the heat's going to be turned up. Right? As they're going to, again, try to force us to be conformed to a secular culture. So what's our response to government? Now, for the most part in this country, we really haven't had to think about this much. Uh, the past 200 years or so, um, we've probably experienced an unprecedented time of uh, religious freedom here in this country. But we're all beginning to see that, those times of freedom come to, a, to an end. So how do we honor the king? But most importantly, how do we honor the king of kings? So they began this last week just to sit down and think through this issue and read different materials. I jotted down some questions that I thought may, might be helpful for us to consider along the way. Questions such as, where does government come from? And then I thought to myself, well, you know, a better question than that is, where does authority come from? Where does authority originate? And then exactly what is the biblical, <clears throat> excuse me, the biblical role of government? What is the biblical role of government? What is the Christian's response to government? What should the hard attitude be towards government? Our hard attitude be towards government. What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach an unlimited obedience to government? Are there ever times when civil government should not be obeyed? Are there biblical limits to government? Is there ever a time where the church should defy tyrants? How about is there ever a time where the church should instruct tyrants? So these kind of issues just kind of came to my mind, things I think we really ought to stop and think about. So what I want to do over the next couple times, I hope it's not a long series, and it's not my desire, just one or two more times, I don't know. What does the Bible have to say about these issues, the issue of government and the Christian's role and how to respond to it? Because I want us to think biblically. Right? We, we, we need to have a tremendous amount of discernment, a tremendous amount of wisdom, and a tremendous understanding of biblical truth in this, in this uh, situation. Right? There's a lot to consider, obviously, more than we can get through in just one uh, time. So let's just begin by slowly starting to work through the verses uh, here in uh, Romans 13. Verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, we don't have time to go into it in full, but I said we've got to take a little bit of time, right? And chapter 13 fits very well into this book, very well into the flow of the book of Romans. There is a considerable amount, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a considerable amount of controversy by the commentators if the first seven verses of uh, uh, chapter 13 even belong in the text. There are many commentators who would argue that there's absolutely no connection whatsoever, either in what goes before or what follows. So many commentators have suggested that they are an intrusion to what the apostle actually said, and perhaps that they were added by someone later at a, at a different time, but that's not true. The first seven verses that we're going to look through here in Romans 13 fit very well into the context of the book of Romans. 
chapter 12, which we're not going into, but chapter 12, uh, Paul talking about in light of the mercies of God, right? In light or in view of the mercies of God in our lives, in view of all that God has done for us in Christ, and he spends 11 chapters laying out all that God has done for us in Christ. What are the responsibilities that we have, and predominantly, what are the responsibilities we have towards each other in the body of Christ? Again, that's the theme out of chapter 12, right? What are the responsibilities we have towards each other in the body of Christ? How do we, who are sinners saved by grace, how do we treat each other? What kind of responsibilities do we have towards those who are not Christians or those who treat us poorly, right? In fact, in chapter 12, Paul tells us because of the mercies of of God towards us in Christ, we have a responsibility even towards those who do us wrong. That as far as it is possible with us, we should be at peace with all men. We should not take on vengeance. We should leave room for God's vengeance, right? We are to overcome evil with good. So when you come on to chapter 13 or you enter to chapter 13, Paul's just carrying that line of thinking forward, the responsibilities that we have in view of God's mercies to us in Christ. And again, the first seven verses here tell us about our responsibilities towards government. How do we relate to government? How do we relate to governmental authority? How are we to understand the role of the state in human affairs? And really, these verses here is a call by Paul to live out in obedience to the doctrines that we understand and believe. Again, in view of the mercies of God. We are called in, uh, as Christians to be the very best citizens of the entire kingdom of men, right? That's our call, to be the best of the best. We are called to understand the reason for government. We are called to understand that God has ordained government, that it exists by his decree. The government is for the good of the people, for the protection of the people, for the well-being of people, to make sure that chaos doesn't break out and that evil men do not go unchecked and unpunished. Again, in the context of the book of Romans, part of the reason that Paul is writing to the Romans at this issue uh, or uh, uh, writing on this issue at this time is that not all Christians in Rome were Gentiles. There were a lot of Jewish believers that were starting to come into the church And Jews throughout their history have a problem of nationalism, if I can say it that way. Not trying to be unkind to anybody, but in the history of the uh, Jewish people, they probably weren't the best citizens under whomever was occupying them or whoever conquered them, right? Because they were fiercely individualistic. They were were, uh, zealous for their own identity, their own nationality, their own independence, their own religion. They didn't like to be under the authority of anyone. But they were often under the authority of foreign rulers. Before the Romans, it was the Greeks, and then it was the Medo-Persians. Before that, the Babylonians, and then that, the Egyptians. So Paul, I think, in the context, is really trying to help the Jewish believers understand here, in the Church of Rome, government. And not just government, but government from a Christian perspective. He wants them to think as believing Christians, not as cultural Jews. He wants them to think as believing Christians, in light of the mercies of God. Right? Uh, again, it, it really is an understanding of relationship. It's really an understanding of relationships on a natural level in real-life situations. You might remember Paul's done this before. He did it over in the book of Ephesians, right? Chapter 5 and chapter 6, the book of Ephesians. Paul lays out in great detail natural relationships between a husband and wife. What's our, how do we get along, right, between the husband and the wife? How about between parents and children? How about between masters and slaves? Real-life practical situations that need to be addressed and need to be thought about properly. Once we come to Christ, how do we deal with these relationships in the world? Uh, Again, what is the Christian's responsibility to government? And and we need to think, again, with great clarity and great biblical precision on this issue. Now, part of the discussion 
that really there's a couple things you're gonna go I don't have brought those in but I'm bringing them in because I'm doing it and you're not okay and so there's a couple of issues that I think really fit into this um, uh, thought of, of government no, no, issue number one is what's our responsibility just in society what's our responsibility in society around us now we understand we're not in the world but we're obviously of the world right we're not we're not in the world we're I'm saying again we're not in the world but obviously we're called to be a part of the world we are in physically in this world not of it but we're in it right so so we're called to be in it but not of it right what does that mean we're living here but we're not supposed to be associated tied to it what, what does that mean right and perhaps we've taken this too far maybe to too great of an extent this idea of separation it's interesting it's a horse historical fact the roman historian tacitus claimed that Nero executed Christians not because of their religious beliefs. Listen to this, Tacitus. Uh, Nero executed Christians because of their, open quote, hatred of the human race, close quote. Their hatred of the human race. He said, yeah, they were aloof. The Christians were aloof. They had a disdain for a common way of life. They had failed to get involved in the system. Uh, They were distinct. And because they were distinct, they appeared to be unloving, unkind, and sensitive to the needs of the world around them, and that caused them problems, and of course that caused Nero, in part, to persecute them. So I think we really need to stop and evaluate our responsibility in the world as those who are called light in the world, as those who are the salt of the earth. There has to be a balance between being too involved in the things of this world and not being involved whatsoever if we have been left in the world, and as I look around, we have been left in the world, right? We have been left in this world as Christ's representatives or ambassadors for Christ. As I'm thinking through this issue, I've told you many times from this uh, pulpit that politics and politicians are not the answer to the world's problems, and I strongly believe that. But perhaps I've taken the statement too far. Maybe you've listened too far. (laughs) That you think I'm saying that Christians should never be involved in politics. Well, let's stop and ask ourselves the question. Who would we want to be involved in politics? People who are God-haters and Christ-haters, we want them to rule over us, or those who love God and those who love Christ. Right? I think we have to have a right balance and think biblically on those kind of issues. Greg Stubbe out of, or Stube, S-T-U-B-E, so if it's Stube or Stubbe, out of Florida. Again, if you've not seen that video between the conversation between him and Jerry Nadler, you need to YouTube it and look it up before they take it down. Because he just basically stands up in the Congress and says, thus says the Lord. To which Nadler says, we don't care what God has to say. Okay, okay. You will it one day, my friend. All right, but you need to hear that. There's a faithful man in Congress who's standing up for righteousness. Now, so I think we have to have a balance. We have to think deeply on these kind of issues. And I think Romans 13 fits very well into what Paul is addressing. He's addressing practical, tangible issues. How do we deal with government? How do we deal with world rulers, corrupt rulers, evil world rulers? How do we deal with rulers who persecute the church? How about dishonest politicians who not only betray our trust, but enact laws that are bringing hardship upon God's people? Maybe we should join in the revolution, right? No. Maybe we should just blindly obey them. No. Maybe we should refuse to obey earthly rulers. Depends, right? Maybe we should refuse to pay taxes because they use our taxes for things that aren't right. No, it's not what Jesus said. We've got to think through these issues. These are the kind of questions that we have to face. These are the kind of questions that this 
portion of scripture is going to help address. What do we do when government begins to encroach upon the church and start to take away our rights or tries to impose unbiblical standards upon us? What do we do? How do we react? And to the best of our ability, I think we need to understand what the text here in Romans 13 is saying to us through the lens of how it was first written and first received in the time in which it was written, not through the lens of our modern thinking, not through the lens of how we think government is or how government ought to be, especially here in the United States in the system that we've grown up under. Right? We, we want to be biblical Christians. We want to have a biblical theology of government, not one that perhaps has been misinformed by our culture. And I really believe that in part of this discussion and our understanding of government and our role, again, always, also has to do with our understanding of what God has called us as the church to do in the world. Right? What has God called us as the church in the world to do? Uh, um, in light of the social justice movement that has just inundated the Christian church, uh, did God leave us here in the world to change the way the world does things? Has God left us here in the world to set things right, to correct all social wrongs? Has he lived, left us here to bring justice here on the earth in time? Now, obviously, there's a whole lot of people in the church today who would obviously say yes to all those things. Some people are trying to bring the kingdom of God into the world through political legislation. Some people are trying to spend their time and money to, uh, and their energy on politics to uh, change uh, things in the world. Some people believe it's their, their responsibility to correct all wrongs and then just uh, spend their time protesting and kneeling, asking for forgiveness. For what, I'm not sure, but that's part of the mantra. Failing to understand just from a biblical perspective the time in which the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth. When did he walk on this earth? What was the world like in his day? It was a world of slavery. Right? Most of the people in Rome were, were slaves. It was a world of absolute rulers, monarchs, despots, evil men who had absolute power, absolute authority over other men. There was no such thing as democracy, no such thing as representative republics. It was one-man rule. And it was this world here where slavery flourished in, in the Roman Empire. It was a world of high taxes. It was a world of high taxes and often unfair high taxes. It was a world of persecution. And it's interesting to me that I watched the response of Jesus to these situations, and it was not his response to try to overturn all the wrongs of the society. Jesus was not a social justice warrior. He didn't protest. He didn't seek to enact legislation to change the way things were. He didn't kneel down. He didn't apologize for all the injustices that he was not a part of in order to assuage the conscience of someone else or his own. Because all these things weren't his primary concern. His concern was not government. His concern was not social justice. His concern was the gospel of grace. He came to preach and proclaim the gospel. He came to preach and proclaim the gospel to secure the salvation of the lost. The current concern of his life was that all men might come to know him salvifically as Savior and Lord, that every man, every man might have their relationship restored to God the Father through him, through his sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the, the purpose of Christ in the world. He came to seek and save the lost. And the purpose of the church is to represent Christ in this world. And if we're wearing the name Christian, then we have to be concerned with what most concerned him. And what most concerned him was the souls of men, not the conditions of the culture or not the condition of the government, politicians or politicians or, or politics, right? 
The Bible says again, we're ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The ambassador, who we are, represents the sovereign. Right? An ambassador sent out as a, as a representative of the sovereign, not with their own opinion, not with their own agenda, but with the agenda of the sovereign. And God has left us in the world as Christians, as believers, to represent Christ, to declare the interests of our sovereign, and the interest of our sovereign is the gospel. Because self-evidently, he's chosen us and left us with this responsibility. Here you go. Write this one down because we're the only ones that understand the gospel, supposedly. Right? We're supposed to be the only ones, right? We are the ones, in totality, that only understand the gospel. We understand it. We're the only ones, therefore, that can declare the truth. The truth about who God is, that God is holy, that the sinless Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. He he was given to this world out of the gift of God's grace and, 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 again, kindness, his love to be the substitute the sin bearer that all men need because God is a faithful, holy God and he will punish sin justly. And men can never come to a knowledge of that truth on their own. They have to have somebody tell them. They have to have someone show them. That truth has to be revealed to them and that's us, the body of Christ. So we are to have an eternal perspective. Again, while we're in the world, we're not of the world. While people have certain political views, irrespective of their political party or position, The truth is all men need Christ. The truth is that forgiveness of sin and salvation is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, that's why God has left the church in the world to declare that truth. C.S. Lewis points this out very well in his book, Mere Christianity. The fact that human beings live forever, but the state is only temporal. The state, right, the government that we live under is comparatively insignificant when measured by eternity. Lewis says this, to spend your time attempting to alter the state when you could be offering people eternal salvation is a bad bargain. To abandon the message that gives life to the eternal soul in favor of temporal change prostitutes the purpose of the believer's life. That would be like a heart surgeon abandoning his life-saving practice to become a makeup artist. The church needs us to use all of its power and resources to bring men and women to Jesus Christ because that is what God has called the church to do. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. Why are we here? What's our purpose? And again, if we ever want to see change, real change, take place in the nation or take place in a society, take place in the world in general, that change only comes one heart at a time. Only one heart at a time. By men's hearts being changed, reconciled to God. Right? Men seeing their desperate need of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture confirms, Revelation uh, uh, 1, verse 6, that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to, be, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. God has made us as the church a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom of politicians, not a kingdom of protesters, not a kingdom of social justice warriors. We're a kingdom of priests. And what does the priest do? The priest is an intercessor. He stands between. The priest brings people to God. That's what priests do. Now, one more little introductory statement on this whole kind of get our hands or mind around it before we start diving in here is, again, the purpose of the church and the world and the issue of government trying to understand these issues is the fact that we as the church, Paul says, listen, 1 Timothy 3.15 The church of the living God is the pillar and the support of the truth. 
The church of the living God is the pillar and the support of the truth, meaning we hold it up, right? We hold it up, we hold it firm, right? We are the ones who know the truth. Therefore, we are the ones who must hold high the truth in a world that does not know the God of truth, in a world that does not know God, won't recognize him, in a world that doesn't honor Christ. Our responsibility, listen, is to be truth-tellers. And we've got to stop, start thinking about this issue. We've got to start thinking about this issue about being truth-tellers. There's a book, a fairly popular out there, written by a guy named Rod Dreher, and the title of that book is Live Not By Lies. I'm not completely endorsing everything in the book. It's got some good points, I think. I'm not endorsing Rod Dreher's theology, um, but that um, line of thinking, that statement, comes out of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. Live Not By Lies. Because when there's a totalitarian takeover, the one thing that you've got to do, wasn't even in my notes, wasn't going there, one thing you've got to do is you've got to get control of the language. You've got to start redefining terms. Have you noticed that? You've got to start redefining terms. You've got to make people think the way you want them to think and agree with what you say is true. And one of the things that, that Solzhenitsyn said, that if you wanted to survive in the Soviet Union, you would agree that two plus two is five. You will agree to it, or you will pay severely for that error in your judgment. And as Christians, we are the people of the truth. We need a lot of wisdom. I don't have an answer to every single problem that you're dealing with or I'm thinking about or whatever. We've got to be people of the truth. What is God's word saying? What is the truth here? Has God made man male and female? I think he has. I don't think it's a very difficult discussion. Is there sin in the world that has perverted man's thinking? Everywhere. And it affects every aspect of our society. God made them male and female. Okay? We are the people of the truth. Now again, let's look at verse 1. It says, Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the first issue in understanding government is that all authority comes from God. There is no authority except from God. In fact, you can go back to the book of the beginnings, right? The book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. Right? The foundational issue of truth, the foundational issue of any society, the fundamental reality is God. The existence of God. The ultimate truth, right? The ultimate authority, the ultimate power. Therefore, all authority in this world is a delegated authority. It's delegated from God himself to others. And everybody needs to realize that, us including. Everybody needs to realize, both rulers and subjects, that authority comes from God, and it's a delegated authority. All authority originated from God. There again, all authority, is exercise, all authority that is exercised by men is a delegated authority from God to men to rule on his behalf. No man is autonomous, meaning no man is his own ruler. No man can just do his own thing. Why? Because in the beginning, God, there's a God who's in heaven. There's a God who is the ultimate being, the ultimate beginning, the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, the ultimate ruler. And likewise, civil government is not autonomous. Civil government is under a stewardship responsibility. Earthly rulers are accountable to God. They are servants of God. Paul says in verse 4, he says, Earthly government is a minister of God for your good. Now, the word minister there is diakonos. We get our English word deacon. 
So the government really is a servant, a minister. All earthly rulers are deacons of God, servants accountable to a master. Therefore, they must govern by God's standard, by the very word of God. It does not say that all who are believers are, de- are under God. No, it says all, all authority are ministers of God for your good. All earthly rulers are deacons of God. And we say, well, look, you know, there's a whole lot of rulers in this world who perhaps the vast majority of them, they don't know that. They don't do that. They don't, they don't govern by the word of God. They don't govern by uh, anything that God has any interest in. Again, Nadler just says we don't even care what God has to say in this Congress. They don't understand that their authority is a delegated authority. They don't understand that they are actually accountable to the creator of God, actually create, accountable to the creator God himself. And you're right, they don't. That's why we're here. Because we're the pillar and the support of the truth. We're entrusted to tell them the truth, to remind them of their responsibilities that they're obviously forgetting on a vast scale, to remind them of the fact that there is a righteous and a holy God to whom all men are accountable, including them, that unless they repent and have their sins covered by the shed blood of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. That is truth. That's not only truth, that's true truth. For both rulers and those who are being governed or ruled over. And listen, it would be unloving if we didn't tell them that. It would be unloving if we didn't warn them of that fact. The fact that God is the king. God is the king of the world. He's not just the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of the church. But he is the Lord, the king of the entire world. He is the supreme one, the ruler. Therefore, again, since that is truth, since God is the king of the world, all people, all civil authorities are underneath his rule. There's no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Again, God is the ultimate authority. All men, all rulers, all civil government authorities are under God's ultimate authority to which they will be held accountable. Now, we used to say, I don't even know if we say this anymore, but we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And in that Pledge of Allegiance, we used to say one nation under God. Obviously, that doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. One nation under God. What does that mean? It used to mean that there was a time where we acknowledged, everyone acknowledged, even civil magistrates, that again, God was the ultimate authority. And civil authorities must operate under the instruction of God who is over them. And they are to govern not according to their own whims, not according to their own fallen, hardened consciences, but according to God's standards. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That means earthly rulers have been put in that position by God himself, and they are his servants. Again, verse 4 says they're ministers of God. Now, just to make sure that we get this in our kind of pluralistic society, he's not talking about some big deity as God. He's writing this letter to the church at Rome. He's talking about the only God, the only true God, the living God, the God of the Bible, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? The governing authorities are ministers of Christ because he's the true God. They're ministers of Christ. Therefore, they must do what Christ says to do. They are responsible to obey him on a personal level. And they're especially accountable to execute their public office on how Christ would have them execute that office. That doesn't mean they legislate church attendance. That's, that's, they, 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 they have a lane, if I can say it that way. They have a lane they have to operate in. That lane for civil authority does not include ecclesiastical matters or matters of the church. 
I'll talk more about that in a moment and more next time, Lord willing. But rulers, as ministers of God, are those who have a delegated authority. They have a responsibility to obey the one whom they have received that authority from. There's no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. They don't have the freedom to rebel against their king. Romans 2 and 5. Because when they do, because of the stubbornness and unrepentance of your heart, you're stirring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. You're stirring up wrath for yourself in your rebellion. Because one day you continue in your rebellion, you're going to stand and you will give judgment to this God and you're going to lose the battle. Revelation 17 verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So again, first, all authority comes from God. All men are accountable to God, accountable to Christ, even earthly rulers. With that said, Paul says, let every person be in subjection to governing authorities. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities. Every person. In the Greek, it's pasuke, which means every soul, literally. Let every soul be in subjection to governing authorities. And it's in the emphatic position in the sentence that means Paul regarded this as a very important issue. Every soul. Now, every soul really is a Hebrewism. <coughs> Hebrewism. It's a figure of speech in the Hebrew language. We wouldn't say every soul. We'd say everyone. The point here is there's no exceptions. That's the idea. There's no exceptions in the context of the book of Romans. Every Christian has a duty. Every Christian has a responsibility to be in subjection to governing authorities. So the next question would be, now what does it mean to be in subjection? Right? Or, or to be subject to those who are in authority over us. Now, it's assumed by many people that it simply means to obey. In fact, you might be reading a commentary, and the, the commentators will often say things like, civil power must be obeyed, or obedience to government is the Christian's duty. Uh, some, some commentators have gone as far to teach that what this particular passage is teaching is absolute, unconditional obedience to authority over us. So my question is, does that phrase, be in subjection, actually mean that? Does be in subjection mean absolute obedience to those in authority? Well, in, in the Greek, the word that we render be in subjection is one word, it's hupotasso. Now, hupotasso is a military term. It means to line up under, to place in rank under, subordinate. Again, it was originally used to arrange soldiers in order under a general, subject them, them, subject them then to his commands, kind of like everybody's lining up on the parade grounds. Waiting their orders, right? They're in a state of subordination, subject to the orders of the commander. So it's, the word is a, talks about an arrangement in a military level. Uh, the, the word also is used to describe a voluntary attitude of giving in or cooperating, assuming responsibility, carrying a burden. The word hubitasa does mean to submit, to yield, to yield to government authorities placed over us here in the context. So stated another way, submission means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of someone else, to voluntarily follow <clears throat> the direction of those in authority over us. But submission is not the same thing as obedience. Submission is not the same thing as obedience. There are at least three other Greek words that specifically mean obey that are used in the New Testament by Paul, but he doesn't use those words here. Instead, he chooses this particular word that's used about 30 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it has the suggestion of obedience, but the idea of obedience is not the predominant thought or the view of the word, because obedience deals with performance. Obedience deals with performance. You're told to do something, you either do it or you don't do it. Right? You're either disobedient, you're either obedient or you're disobedient. 
But submission, listen, has to do with what? The heart. Submission has to do with the heart. It's a heart attitude. Submission is the proper heart attitude towards those who are over us. And I think that distinction is vital. Because as a Christian, there may be many times when you are not able to carry out or to obey the commands of those who are over you. But you can always have a heart attitude of submission. In fact, we are commanded to have a heart attitude of submission. Because when we have a heart attitude of biblical submission, we're acknowledging the fact that God is actually the sovereign in the room. God is the sovereign over the governing authorities. If we understand that authority comes from God, all authority is delegated, and we submit, subject ourselves to those in leadership over us with a heart attitude that is right, we understand there's no authority but God. He's the sovereign, and all authority comes from him. No authority is given except by him. So the heart attitude of biblical submission is believing that God is able to accomplish his will in and through whomever he has placed in a position of power and authority. Biblical submission means we understand that God is sovereign, not man. Biblical submission forces us to place our attention, our focus on God and not on the human ruler over us. Understanding that that human ruler, whoever they are, that the authority they have, they are not acting on their own, but they're acting as an instrument in the hands of God, for he, again, alone is sovereign. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't hold uh, wicked rulers accountable. He does. But listen, in the history of God's dealing with his people, he has often used wicked rulers for the good of his people. He has taken what men have meant for evil, and he has turned it around for good because he happens to be the sovereign. So when it comes to the issue of authority and government, we all tend to forget that fact that we just acknowledge all the time. We all tend to forget the fact that God is sovereign. Right? And we begin to look at people, and when we look at people, forget that God is sovereign, we tend to become what? Bitter. Angry. Right? But if we can just keep that proper perspective, the biblical understanding that authority is from God, we won't become bitter, but rather we'll have the right perspective on the way things are. Right? It may not change our current situation, but it'll give us a hard attitude to understand the way things are. Joseph is a classic example, I think, of in the Old Testament. He's a guy who had become tremendously bitter, right? You stop and look at his life, constantly mistreated by his brothers, lied about, slandered, falsely imprisoned, forgotten. When the entire event came to the conclusion, and when he was reunited with his brothers, and who started the whole event, again, by selling him into slavery, he came to them with a divine perspective on his life. He came to them with a divine perspective on the entire situation, that demonstrated a submissive heart, demonstrated a heart that understood God's divine sovereignty in his life. Genesis 50, verse 20, he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. To preserve many people alive, right? God, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. Again, Joseph falsely accused, thrown into prison, but God in his sovereignty not only put him there, he put him there at the right time, the right place, at the right time to rescue the nation of Israel from a famine that was coming, and in doing so, rescue the line that would bring the Messiah into the world. All that to say God's sovereign and we're not. All that to say we don't know how God's working in the world. We don't know how God is using all the events of the world. We don't know how God is using COVID 
or wicked rulers in this world. But we do know that God is in charge. And we do know that God works out all things for his glory and for the best of his people. Our duty is not to figure the whole thing out. Our duty is to submit. Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, right? To those in authority over us. So that word hupotasso, again, subjection, present, passive, imperative. Present tense verb just means this is an action presently that currently needs to happen. Passive, it means that it's voluntarily, right? We're, we're, uh, we, it is a voluntary subjection of oneself to the will of another. Imperative just means it's a mood of command. So this is what we need to be presently actively doing, right? By, by way of command. It means that the, the Roman Christians and all the Christians, for that matter, throughout time, including us, presently, continually, actively, we need to be voluntarily subjecting ourselves, placing ourselves with the right heart attitude of those who are in authority over us. Submitting to them, not necessarily to them as the person who is worthy to be submitted to, but subjecting ourselves to them and their authority because we are actually, in doing that, honoring God and obeying God's word. So again, this is the idea of biblical submission. It's really a heart attitude. It's the heart of the Christian, the heart that all Christians should have to those in authority of all realms, whether they be civil authority, civil government, or perhaps your employer, who you spend probably a lot of time with. And even in the church, right? God has set up order and uh, elders and deacons in the body of Christ to govern and serve it also. God has ordained authority. There's no authority except that comes from him. And whatever authority there is exists because he established it. And when we resist that authority, we are opposing God himself. Again, obedience deals with performance. Submission or subjection deals with the heart of the Christian. And it's the Christian character really not to assert himself but to make room for others, to prefer others, to give them priority, as it were. So that's really the idea of this word, to be in subjection to. We just simply recognize those in authority of us are representatives of God. We recognize their position uh, because God has placed them there. Therefore, we are to do our best to honor them, respect them, put ourselves under them, to submit to them, ourselves to them. And again, as we're submitting ourselves to them, we're submitting to God and his sovereignty. One old uh, commentary reads like this. It says, Uh, Compare a river that keeps its bounds to one that overflows its banks. Men must not forget that all well-ordered societies exist only by subjection. For every community to be kept in order, they must have a recognized head, one who shall be allowed to rule uh, either by his own will or the organized will of the whole. Hence, man in his most savage state has some recognized chief. And that's from a well, way old commentary. And I thought that's a good point, right? All societies have some kind of order and function. Even in the most savage of societies, uh, things do not run under, well under chaos. So when Paul says, let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, I think we've got to get rid of our, 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 our uh, uh, notion also. Well, again, it's a heart attitude. We've got to get rid of the notion that is pretty prevalent, I think, in a lot of Christianity, that this is a call to blind obedience. It's not what he says. He's talking about your heart, Right? It's not a call to blind obedience. It's not a call to do absolutely everything that those in authority tell us to do. You know, we've gone through this repeatedly in the history of war. Men can't say, I'm only carrying out the order of my superior by murdering innocent women and children. It's not going to stand up in a war trial. It's just not going to stand up. Now, Nero... His office was ordained by God. Certainly, his actions were not. 
Nero's actions were his own actions, the actions of a wicked, perverted man. His government, or the government at the time, around, or again, surrounding the writing of the time of the letter, or surrounding the time of the early church, that government was thoroughly pagan, morally debased, despotic, oppressive, unjust, brutal. But he still says, look, you need to have a hard attitude to the best of your ability because you want to obey God, you want to honor God. So the question is, are we to obey government or are we to subject ourselves to those in authority over us? Well, the initial answer is yes. And God placed them there. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause for fear, but for good behavior. Or Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for he is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Right? Every well-ordered society has to have some role and function and authority to recognize it. But are we to obey absolutely everything the government would say we are to do? The answer to that is absolutely no. But even in our refusal to obey, we have to maintain a proper heart attitude, respecting the office which Nero so to speak, holds, right? You have to have a proper attitude. So what's the proper, when is it proper to disobey governing authorities? I'm going to give you three. You probably want to write them down. I'll repeat them. When is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Number one, when government forbids what God commands. When is it proper to disobey governing authorities? When government forbids what God commands. Number two, when government commands what God forbids. When government, forget, when government forbids what God commands. Number two, when government commands what God forbids. And number three, when government commands what is not theirs to command. When government commands what is not theirs to command. And again, this has all to do with the purpose of government, which I wish we had time to go into this morning, but we don't. But the scripture clearly teaches there are limits in government, limitations upon government, which God himself has put over the realm of civil authority. I said it earlier, it's a lane. They got to stay in their lane, so to speak. While all authority comes from God and all authority has been delegated by God, God has delegated authority on three different levels. There is authority in the home. There is authority vested in the church. And there is authority vested in civil government. Some people like it like this. They like the idea of government. Not authority, but they want government. Okay? So you have family government. You have church government. And you have civil government. And each has its own function. Each has its own jurisdiction in the lives of men. And within each realm, limits on the extent of authority. For example, government in the home. Obviously, the father has the uh, duty to instruct and rule over the children, uh, his family to govern his home. But if the child is told by that father to go out and rob the local bank, that child would have the right not to obey his father because his father has stepped out of bounds. He's violated his realm of authority. Likewise, if government tells us to do what God forbids us to do, or 
government forbids us to do what God commands, then they have stepped out of their lane, as it were, and we have a duty to obey God rather than to obey men. If government, civil government, sets limits within the church on worship as to manner, style, distance between individuals, whether you should have your face covered or not, how many people can gather together on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord, they have stepped out of bounds. They are out of their lane. They are trying to exercise authority in a realm that does not belong to them. Because in the church, God has vested authority with pastors, elders, not with civil government. But someone's going to raise the argument, government is just trying to, quote-unquote, save people's lives by limiting the number of people who can gather together in a church and stop the spread of COVID. They're just looking out for your best interest. Let me give you a warning, going back to my days uh, of, uh, of uh, political science. When somebody comes and tells you, I'm going to rule over you, and it's only for your best interest, you need to have your ears like straight up. Because they are here to oppress you. Because they are going to set the standards of what they think is best for you. Authority has been vested in the church with pastors and elders. Again, this idea that government is just trying to help save people's lives. Now, it's interesting to me, and I've listened to uh, Aaron Coates speak about it, and you know it's the same thing true here in the state. Well, she, they were locked up her husband. I don't know how many people go to that church. I think it's like quadrupled since they locked him up. But when they locked him up, there wasn't a whole lot of people who went to that church. But the, guess what? There's a whole lot of people that even in Canada go to Costco or go to Walmart. And those numbers are vastly higher than what usually attended his church before he got put into prison. And there's not seems to be a problem with people gathering at Costco or Walmart, especially when we're all in Walmart and they're counting everybody and you've got to all come in and out the same door, right? Which makes a tremendous amount of sense to me, right? Because you're trying to keep people from getting COVID, so you make sure you follow them all through one door so they can all kiss and hug each other on the way out, I guess. <laughs> right? The irrationality is off the chart. But here's the question. Does government have the biblical responsibility to save people's lives? That's something you need to think about. Does government have the responsibility to protect people's lives? And, and, and that's a great question we're going to end on. One that we need to have a perspective on, a biblical perspective. Lord willing, we'll get to. But I'll just give you like a, what they call it, a spoiler. The answer to that question is no. They don't have that right. That's not biblically given to them. Their responsibility is to protect our rights, not our lives. We live in a fallen world. There's all kinds of risks. You get in your car. I told you a few weeks back, there's like 3,000 times higher percent of you dying in a car accident in this county than there is for you to die from COVID. I get people die from COVID. I got it. People die from influenza. Well, they don't anymore because influenza deaths are down to zero. Because guess what? Everything, you know, you could jump off a 12-story building and they'll write it down as a COVID death. Right? I'm not saying that COVID is not a problem for some people. It is. I got it. It's not the issue. Is it government's right, biblically, is it their responsibility to protect our lives? Right? And again, we'll look at it, Lord willing, uh, next time out of Genesis chapter 1. Right? Now, we just barely got started, honestly. There's a lot of things to think about. We're living in a time where we need to think clearly. We need to think biblically. We need to have a tremendous amount of wisdom and understanding. And we need to begin with a biblical understanding, a biblical theology of government 
What's government's role? What's its responsibility? How can we ultimately honor the king at the same time, most importantly, we're honoring the king of kings? Right? Those are the issues.